The Lost Ballparks Podcast is on the air. Hello, everybody. This is Jack Buck with Carl Erskine at Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, Missouri. From Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Brought to you direct from Comiskey Park. So we have action at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn. And there's always action here. Across the field in Cincinnati, Ohio. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Sunny day here at Tiger Stadium. The wind blowing straight in from right field. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. Go pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for a two throughout the evening. My guest today was a six-time All-Star, 1961 Rookie of the Year, NL batting champion. Finished his career with 2,711 hits, 426 home runs, and a lifetime 290 batting average, and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1987. From the Chicago Cubs, sweet swinging Billy Williams. Oh, that's hit. Back to go. Back, back, back. Hey, hey! He did it! Billy Williams put it on the catwalk and right. The Cubs win the ball game. Everybody out of the dugout now. Let's give them the great big welcome at home plate. Woo, boy! Billy Williams, thanks so much for coming on the Lost Ballparks podcast. How are you? Doing fine. I'm doing fine. How's the weather in San Diego? Nice? Oh, it's good. Nothing but sunshine. Good, good. So great to talk with you today, Billy. Uh, let's jump into it. In 1956, at age 17, two days after you finished high school, you were signed by the Chicago Cubs for $1,500. And after years of listening to games on the radio with your dad... This is going to be quite a ball game. We have two evenly matched squads here tonight, and it should really be a swell game. And dreaming about one day playing in the big leagues, this was really a dream come true for both of you. It really was, Mike. Uh... I think the one thing that inspired me was my brother. He signed He signed to play baseball in 1955. And of course, I graduated in 1956. And two days after I finished high school, I was on my way to a little town called Parker City, Oklahoma. But uh, he inspired me because we used to talk and I used to get together with him during the during the winter months. And he'd tell me how good, uh, you know, professional baseball was. And so... Along with uh, him and my other two brothers who played, uh, my older brother played with uh, the Mobile Black Bears. He was a pitcher on the same team that uh, Henry Aaron played for. There was a moment in 1958 when you and Ron Santo were at a Cubs rookie camp in Mesa, Arizona. Hall of Famer Rogers Hornsby, who had a lifetime batting average of 358 and who hit 424 in 1924, was your hitting instructor. Greatest right-handed hitter in the game of baseball. He lined up a bunch of the Cubs minor leaguers on the bleachers and one by one went down the line and told each of them that they would never make the big leagues. If you read anything about Roger Hansen, he was one of the most straightforward guys there was in baseball. And uh, he was a great hitter. That's why he's a great hitter, because he didn't listen to nobody. He wanted to swing the bat real good, and he did that well. So we was in a transition at that time. Uh, we had a general manager by the name of uh, John Holland, you know, going through uh, what we're going to do next year. We got some players in the minor league. We're in transition. We're going to see who we got in the minor league to play the game of baseball. The Roger Hunter went to most uh, most minor league uh, franchises that we had. We had about five or six of them. Uh, John Holland told him to go down and look at all the players and see who do we have in the minor league pretty close to uh, playing in the major league in the next couple of years because we're going to make some changes in the major league. So after going around uh, to many ball clubs in AAA, uh, A-ball, uh, all the way down to D-ball, and uh, when they got to AA, we worked out a couple of days, 
and uh, he saw him swinging the bat. He saw him fielding ground balls, uh, catching fly balls in the outfield. And he lined us all up. And uh, after about four or five days, after seeing everything we did, he lined us all up in the stands. And uh, he went down to each individual and just told them that, uh, hey, you could go home and get a job because you can't. You can't play baseball. It's better <laughs> you find another job because professional baseball is not for you. Right. And after telling five or six guys, so Ronnie and I had always been close. We played, uh, you know, when he came down to San Antonio, we got to know each other. And, and uh, because a lot of the Chicago people in the office and a lot of uh, baseball people were talking about Sano and Williams could possibly play in the big league. So Rogers Hanby you know, came down to us and he said, William, he said, uh, you could, you could hit and you could play in the big league right now. You just keep it working on your craft and pretty soon you're going to be in the major league. He got to, uh, Sano and he said, Sano, you could, uh, you could play in the major league also. Sano was a catcher. Then they switched him to th third base. So after telling us that and telling all the guys that, uh, you know, you could go home and, and get another job because you can't play in a major league. And, you know, he came back to Chicago and told John Holland, said, uh, John, I went round to your minor league uh, baseball teams and I saw two players that was in San Antonio, Texas, a kid by the name of Billy Williams and a kid by the name of Ron Sano. Uh, in a couple of years, maybe in a year, you could bring those two individuals up to the major league and you could release everybody you had in the minor league. So <laughs> that's what he told. That's what he told John Holland. It was it was really something. Ronnie, Ronnie and I have told that story many times because we got a chance to uh, know Rogers Hundley, and uh, you know he's an individual that knew how to hit the baseball, and he used to carry us down in the batting cage and and work with us. Many a day, you know, uh, I think one of the often things you talk about, you're going to get one good ball to hit. Uh, don't miss it. And that made us keep our eye on the ball. You know, we, we, we didn't lead the baseball. In 1959, you and Ron Santa were teammates on the AA San Antonio missions. And you were making a run at Carl Yastrzemski for the AA minor league batting title. I think you were hitting around 320 at the time. But while your play on the field was outstanding, you had to endure horrific acts of discrimination. When the team would travel to different cities, the bus would stop before it got to the team hotel and would drop you off because you weren't allowed to stay in a white hotel. Can you talk about that for a minute? Well, it, it was really difficult. And I think uh, I've told this many times and, and those kind of things you like to forget about. You could talk about them, but uh, people knew it happened. You know, that's one of the reasons why I elected to go home because I wanted I didn't want to play the game anymore. I had got fed up with everything that was going on because I couldn't stay at the hotel. I was a, I was the last one to be dropped off at night, and I was the first one to be picked up, you know, before we go to the game. So it was, uh, you know, you're trying to fight baseball, you're trying to fight the pitchers out there, and you're trying to fight discrimination. So I elected to uh, forget about baseball for a while because, you know, when I left uh, Alabama, I knew where I could go, when I could go. But uh, when you went off to play game of baseball, you thought it would change because you was on a team with a lot of uh, white players. The Cubs called Negro League legend Buck O'Neill to go talk with you. O'Neill had discovered you and your teammate Ernie Banks, so you had a little history with him. 
And here he is making a visit to your house. He he pulled up to the front of your house in his Plymouth Fury. What did he say to you? Well, I, I was, uh, you know, after being home for about five or six days, and uh, I knew that, uh, you know, I talked to my father, and he said, what are you doing? He said, you wanted to do something in life, play professional baseball. Now you're getting an opportunity to play professional baseball, but you're home. Why did you do that? I said, Daddy, I just got tired. I didn't want to play anymore. And I had been there five days, and uh, my father built a home. It was about, I guess, about 50 yards from the main street. And I saw this theory, because Buck always, always drove a theory, Plymouth theory. He had this theory. He drove up in the yard uh, because John Holland had told him to go down and see what's wrong with William because we expect him in the future to play, uh, you know, in the major league with Ernie. Right. And uh, Buck drove up, and I said, oh, I'm in trouble now, because I had met Buck in spring training, and Buck was like a father figure to me, uh, father figure to many uh, black ball players. And, of course, you know, when he rode up and he got out of his car and he said uh, his favorite word was, what's wrong, boy? I said, Buck, I don't want to play this game no more. But, uh, you know, we talked, and he stayed around for about four or five days. But I think the one thing that happened and made me want to go back, and Buck knew uh, what he was doing, you know, because he'd been around players. I think some of the players, when he was managing uh, the Kansas City Monarchs, a lot of players probably got fed up and went home and did different things. But he asked me, where did I play uh, baseball with the friends and stuff? And I told him, I said, I died at Pritchard Park which is about two and a half miles from Whistler. So he said, let's go down there and, 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 and talk to the guys and see what they're doing down there. So when we went down, uh, you know, I was walking around watching the guys play because I didn't play. And a lot of, a lot of the players came up, guys I went to school with. My friends grew up in the neighborhood. They said, uh, you know, Bill, where you been? I said, listen, I, I've been off playing professional baseball. And they were talking about how good is that? You know, I bet you're having a lot of fun and all this kind of stuff. And Buck just sitting back and laughing, you know, smiling because he knew what was happening. The guys were jealous of me playing baseball. They wanted to do what I did. And uh, I told Buck after we left, I said, Buck, I'm ready to go back and play baseball now. So after about, I guess about five or six days, I went back to, uh, I went back to San Antonio and played. And you tear up the minor leagues, hitting 476 in AAA. And in a matter of weeks, you were called up to the big leagues where you made your debut with the Cubs August 6th, 1959. It's a beautiful day. No matter what happens out here weatherwise, it's a beautiful day. You know, as soon as I got to Chicago, we stayed at the uh, Shed Plaza Hotel. And time I walked in the room, and like every young man, you know, after getting to a certain point, his father had been working with him for many, many days, and all of a sudden, you call him on the phone, and not, you don't say, I made it, but you say, we made it, because uh, you give him a lot of respect for being there for you many, many years. Take me through the moment where you first walked out on the field at Wrigley. I'll tell you, just a, just a Major League Baseball park, you know, after, uh, you know, because I followed the game. You know, with my three brothers and my father, we sit and watch on Saturday every baseball game that was played. And uh, I saw films of Wrigley Field. I, I knew what it was like. Uh, I knew about Chicago. And uh, when I went on the baseball field, and it just 
you know, it's what blew my mind. This is a major league baseball park. And I think I'm like many, many youngsters, you know, when they play baseball in little league, get a chance to play in the minor league. And all of a sudden you walk on a major league field, which everything is manicured, the bases, uh, the grass are greener, uh, the dugouts you have, different things that you saw on television. So I tell you, it was exciting to, 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 to walk on Wrigley Field ground. I'm, I'm still excited when I walk out there now because it's a ballpark that uh, stood the test of time. Uh, Wrigley Field and, of course, uh, uh, Fenway Park in Boston. It's just exciting to go to ballpark. I go out there about three times out of ten. So, Billy, your first full year at the Cubs was 1961, and I think you were living at the Mansfield Hotel. And you, Tony Taylor, and Ernie Banks used to grab a bite to eat at a little place called, I think it was Ted's Diner. Yeah, it was on uh, Cottage Grove. Ted Diner before we entered the baseball field. What would you guys talk about? Well, we talk about baseball. Uh, at that time, I was trying to pick uh, Ernie's brain about the pitching in the major league, and of course, Tony Taylor's brains about uh, you know how, what it's like playing in the big league, uh, what you have to do to continue to play good in the big league, and and uh, it's just most of the time talking about baseball. We were about uh, I guess about five or six miles from the ballpark, so along with eating at Ted Diner's and you jump in a car, and then you ride up Lakeshore Drive and uh, uh, DeSalvo Lakeshore Drive, and uh, you continue to talk about baseball. And after the game, you talk about baseball. At that time, you know, it's a uh, guy stayed in the clubhouse after the game about uh, 20, 30 minutes just talking a game of baseball. Yeah, and but it's funny because Ernie Banks would make up all kinds of funny rhymes and slogans like I think he would say... <laughs> You'd say the Cubs will shine in 69. It was a lot of fun with him. He tried to keep everybody loose. Hey, hey, holy mackerel, no doubt about it. The Cubs are on their way. Hey, hey, hey! That was him. And, and, and you know, when you're hitting home runs out the ballpark, you always feel good. You're getting base hits, you always feel good. He enjoyed it. That's why he said, let's play two. Sunshine, fresh air, so let's play two. Hitting so good, he wanted to play too. But uh, to room with him my first year, and uh, we just had a lot of fun. Just, as I say, trying to pick his brain about uh, different pitches in the major league, what they throw, and how they try to get you out. And uh, it's just a a thing that uh, you really stayed close to him because you thought you could learn everything from him because he was having some outstanding years in the game of baseball. Your second year in baseball, you had the opportunity to play some barnstorming games with Satchel Paige. Yeah, oh yeah, that was one of my claim to fame, you know. It was it was really exciting to uh, to go around with a legendary guy like Satchel Paige. I think it was my second year in baseball, and when I went back to Mobile, Alabama, which we have so many great players coming from that area, and uh, Satchel Paige was one of them. Uh, my father used to talk about him, and, and of course, a guy by the name of Bill Robinson lived right here in Chicago, played in the Negro League. But uh, to Bornstorm with Satchel Page, we used to take about five or six guys from Mobile, and each time we go in the city, we get some players from that city to play the game of baseball. And, and we start out, you know, playing the game, and about the seventh inning, you know, you see Satchel Page drive up. The fans saw Satchel Page drive up in his 
big white Cadillac. He always drove a white Cadillac. And, of course, he walk in the baseball park, and he'll walk down to the dugout and ask for the big catch, you know, the guy that wasn't catching that night. And he'll say, come on, go down to the bullpen with me. And when you walk, when they walk down the bullpen, they take out a piece of gum and, uh, you know, ball it up. They take the gum out and start chewing it. And they take a little wrapping and he just throw it down on the ground and told the catcher, say, come on, big catcher, sit right behind there. Let me see how many I could throw over there. And that's the kind of control he had. But uh, I tell you, I, I really enjoyed being around him. He used to call me Young Blood, and of course, uh, when I played with him, uh, down there, when I bunched on with him, and, and when he came to Chicago, I was at this uh, Evans Hotel, and uh, I went down to have breakfast one morning. The servant said, uh, there's, a, there's another ball player in the hotel, and I said, who is that? And she said, Satchel Page. Immediately, I put the fork, knife and fork down, so I went up to his room and uh, to see him, because I hadn't seen him in about three or four years, but... Uh, you know, I really enjoyed being around him because there were so many things, uh, you know, talked about him, how great he was as a pitcher and as an individual. In 61, you were the NL Rookie of the Year, hitting 25 home runs and driving in 86. And in 1962, you made your first All-Star game. There were two All-Star games that year. The first game was played at D.C. Stadium later named RFK Stadium. Good afternoon, baseball fans. This is Joe Garagiola welcoming you to the District of Columbia Stadium in the first All-Star Baseball game of 1962. And the second one you played in was at Wrigley Field. The first three players introduced are all members of the Chicago Cubs, outfielders Billy Williams and George Altman, and first baseman Ernie Banks. That team, by the way, included Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays, Bob Gibson, Warren Spahn, Hank Aaron, Stan Musial, Ernie Banks, Eddie Matthews, Frank Robinson. And here you are, late in the game, you were sent in to sub out Stan Musial. The outfield made up of Billy Williams in left, Hank Aaron in center, Frank Robinson in right. Well, if you turn on the television when they're having the Hall of Fame ceremony, all of those guys will be walking out. Uh, the ones who are living, those the guys will be walking out because I played against them. A lot of Hall of Famers I played from 1959 to 60 and early 70s. But uh, Fred Hutchinson was the manager. He managed Cincinnati that particular year. And as you say, we played two All-Star games. I think for two years we played all two All-Star games. The first one was played, of course, as you say, in a different setting. And after winning the Rook of the Year, getting a chance to play in the second All-Star game, which was here in Wrigley Field. And you talk about how exciting that was uh, to sit on the bench, to walk up and down and look at these individuals who've been in the major league for many, many years. And, of course, this was my second year in the big league. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, Fred Hutchison walked down to the end of the bench, which I was sitting down. I gave the, the big guys the room up, up front up there. And, and, uh, and he said, uh, William, oh, man, I got excited then. The heart started racing. And he said, go to left field and pick up Stan Musial. And I thought that was some of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest lines I've heard in my in the game of baseball. It's just incredible. At Wrigley, there was no barrier between the players and the fans as you left the clubhouse after a game. No gated area, nothing like that. So you would walk across the street and sign autographs along the way before hopping in your Buick Wildcat. <laughs> right? You know all about me, don't you, Mike? Yeah, I do. Where are you from? <laughs> you say you're in San Diego. Where are you from, Chicago? I'm from Ohio originally. Oh, oh. 
Listen, yeah, before, uh, you know, put the uh, put the fence and everything up, we had to walk across the street. There was no no, no, no fence or no nothing to shield the fans from us when we got in our car. So walking to the car, you're going to sign 10 to 15 autographs for the fans out there. And I think most of the guys did that uh, after you leave the ballpark and the fans will be waiting out there chanting, you know, they love the Cubs. And when we walked out, uh, they would still be around your car, and you have to sign about 10 or 15 autographs, and all of a sudden you say, well, we got to go now. And you did that every day. Right. <laughs> hey, by the way, one of, my, one of my favorite Billy Williams highlights was, and I'm sure you remember this, opening day, 1971 at Wrigley Field. You're facing one of the hardest-throwing pitchers of all time, Bob Gibson. It's the bottom of the 10th. Do you remember that game? I remember it well. Anytime you hit a home run off of Bob Gibson or Warren Marshall or Sandy Koufax or Don Drysdale, you remember it well because they didn't give up that many. There's a pretty good shot to center field. A very good shot. The ball came over. The Cubs win it on a Billy Williams home run. Well, it looks like the World Series, doesn't it? With all those players crowded around the hero of the afternoon, Billy Williams, as his tremendous home run to right center broke the 1-1 deadlock, and gave the Cubs a 2-1 victory on opening day in 10 innings. Mike, let me tell you this. I remember we was in, in the uh, in an All-Star game. We were all sitting on the bench, and uh, somebody asked uh, uh, different Koufax, that's Sandy Koufax, say, Sandy, all these guys here got 400, 500 home runs. Say, how many home runs uh, did these guys hit, hit off of you? And Sandy started looking at the swings. i tell you right now. William, you hit one or two. Stargy, you hit one. Lou Brock, you hit one. You know, he just go down the line. He knew everybody that uh, swung the bat and hit a home run off him because you didn't do it that much. And, of course, going back to Bob Gibson, uh, Fergie and Bob Gibson, it, it was opening day. And, because uh, every opening day, you're going to hit those you're going to get those number one pitches. They're going to open the season. And that's what happened in regular field here. Fergie and Bob Gibson. They locked horns, and, you know, after about 10th inning, and they were still out there. Fergus still pitching. Bob Gibson was still pitching. And uh, the weather started to get cold. I think it got down to about 40 degrees. And uh, Bob Gibson threw me a, a slide piece, a slide inside, and I hit the ball over the right field fence. And I think we won the game 2-1, to one, but we wind up winning the game. And it was a thrill for me to do that. You know, in Wrigley Field, opening day, full house, and to hit the ball out the ballpark and the Cubs win on opening day, that was really exciting to the fans, exciting to me. I bet you Fergie came up to you after the game and gave you a big hug, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, he always did. You know, every time he went to the mound, we expected to win with him out there. And, of course... He did, you know, a guy who won 20 games in a row for five years. Uh, every time he went on the mound, you know, we expected to win because he gave us a good pitch ball game. In 1972, you have a career year. Finished the season hitting 333, 122 RBIs, and hit home run number 37 at Wrigley Field. Philly hits on the deep center field, going back to center field to Rookay, but it is gone. Way up there in about the sixth or seventh row in center field, Billy Williams has just socked his 37th home run of the year. You finished second in the MVP vote to bench, but honestly, looking back at the statistics and how you played that year and what you meant to the Cubs, 
I would have had you first. I wish you had had a vote then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 you know, the, 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 the two years I had, 1970 and 72, I think one of those years, uh, you know, I should have been placed, uh, uh, got more, most likely to play a, a vote. And uh, I was looking forward to that, especially when I hit the uh, 42 home runs, drove in so many runs, and... Uh, uh, one of those years, I think I, I should have won the most valuable play. And that was a big letdown because 1971, when I went to, went into the 1971 season, you know, I, I, the whole month, uh, I'm saying, what do I have to do, you know, to win the MVP? Because I, I was going for the triple crown, triple crown at one time. But, uh, you know, I, I elected to uh, just settle for the batting title. When you were playing in the 1960s, I think the National League had some of the greatest old ballparks. I want to talk about some of those that you had the privilege of playing in. Let's start with the polo grounds. The Giants left the polo grounds after the 1957 season, but the Mets used the ballpark while Shea Stadium was being built in 1962 and 63. It used to be named after polo field. It was a polo field. And of course, right field and left field was about 220 down the line. And uh, center field was out of sight. The clubhouse is in center field. Any pitcher that got thrown out of a ball game or left the game, he had to walk all the way to center field and get up in the uh, clubhouse. You had the steps to go up in the clubhouse. The home team was on the right side, and the, uh, the visiting team was on the left side. And you had to walk up the stairs, but you had to be careful. You don't want the fans to, to grab your hat. You had to take off your hat and put it in your pocket. And, and uh, you know, you could tell the ballpark, center field was out of sight. Center field was about 450, I think. And uh, you realize when Willie made that catch in 19, what was it? 54. You could tell Willie made the catch, and that was about, uh, I guess, about 25 or 30 feet behind him. And, of course, they had the high hitter's eye. And I think there was only three guys have hit the ball over that hitter's eye. And one of them was my ex-teammate, was Lou Brock. Here's a drive going deep to center field. Richie Ashman going way back in towards the bleacher area. And this one is hitting on top and into the center field bleachers. Into the center field bleachers for a home run. And the polo guys, a tremendous wallop. Wow, that's incredible. You wouldn't think of him hitting the ball that far, but he did one Sunday afternoon. Playing for the Cubs in the 60s, you would play the Milwaukee Braves at County Stadium. After the games, you and Hank Aaron, you were both from Alabama, so you had something in common, would routinely go out for dinner or go out and have a drink. Can you talk about those get-togethers with Hank Aaron? Oh, yeah. We did over in Milwaukee, and, of course, uh, we did down in Atlanta in Atlanta when, uh, you know, when, when the team moved down there. But uh, we got together with all the guys. You know, you have Tommy Agee, Cleon Jones, Amos Otis, Henry Aaron, Tommy Aaron, uh, Frank and Milt Bowling. And every time we played against each other, uh, you know, we would get together and just talk baseball and talk about, you know, how, growing up in the city which we were from. But I think one of the one of the biggest exciting uh, moments when when I used to go to Atlanta because uh, the city of Mobile they charter about two or three buses to come up to see the Cubs play the Atlanta Braves because the Braves the radio station would cover Mobile, and a lot of people knew about the Atlanta Braves. And, of course, when the Cubs would go down, you know, there was several buses coming up from Mobile just to 
watch their native son play against each other. Yeah, and by the way, isn't it true that uh, before spring training, there were about 15 guys from the Mobile, Alabama area who were in the big leagues at the time, and you guys would get you guys would get together and go bowling? Oh, sure, sure. Well, that's, that's what we did, because after the season, after the last out is made and the season is over with, I come in from left field, and I threw my glove in the stand until Fergie got here, and I used to give it to Fergie. And we didn't do anything until about three weeks before we go to spring training. So about three weeks before spring training started, we would call each other and say, we're going to go out, go to Harbor Field. You know, the, Tommy Aaron Franklin, my brother, George Scott, would come over from Mississippi, Willie McCovey, Amos Otis, Cleon Jones, Tony Agee, uh, and all the guys would come out and say, well, we're going to have two or three rounds of hitting each day for about uh, three weeks. Take about two turns you know, swinging the bat. We didn't have a hitting screen. They had to hit the ball to left field or right field. And you could tell by how those guys swung the bat. If they had to hit the ball through the middle of the diamond, they would, they would kill somebody. Yeah. You know? But <laughs> we had to hit the ball to left or right field. And we'll have a couple, of two or three rounds of uh, hitting, like about three weeks. And then we'll sit up in the stand after we hit and just talk about baseball. Just talk about the team and talk about different players in the major league, different pitchers. You played many games at Cincinnati's Crosley Field. And as a left fielder, you had to deal with the terrace. <laughs> there was a hill that ran from left field to right field that sloped upward toward the outfield wall. It served as sort of a warning track at Crosley Field. But it was way more pronounced in left field. In Cincinnati, they had the, uh, the scoreboard went all the way down to the, uh, the ground. That was about, uh, I guess, about 10 or 15 feet from where you would stand. But the hill would be from the scoreboard to where you're standing. So you had to be careful not to run up the hill and fall because you had to step a little high when you go up the hill. Many, many players have fell when they went up there because, you know, they had a different level of ground. They wanted to keep the baseball off the freeway and the right field. They had the moon deck out there. So it's a different, each one of those ballparks I played in, and something unique about every ballpark. During the 60s, the Pirates were playing at Forbes Field. What do you remember about Forbes Field? I remember the, the good sound. They had a good sound system in uh, uh, Pittsburgh. The Forbes Field was great. It was a great place to play. And uh, you played against some outstanding players up there. And then left field, the fence was a long way. And, and I tell the people many times that uh, after batting practice, they will put the cage, the hitting cage, in center field. They didn't store it nowhere else but in center field. And I tell the guys, the guys asked me, said, why did they put the thing in center field? I said, you know, they didn't have a place to put it. I said, well, you didn't have to worry about it because it was about 460, 470 out in center field. And they had the, the right field, which was uh, net wide in right field. And uh, Clemente used to hit him off of that many times. Clemente lines a drive deep to right field. Henry Aaron goes back, 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 and you can kiss it goodbye. It's gone for a home run for Roberto. But Ford Field was the clubhouse. You had to come under the stands, go to the field. As I say, all ballparks were different at that time. There, there was no cookie-cutter ballpark. Every one of them was different. From 1966 to 1972, Leo DeRocher was your manager. If you play for DeRocher, you've got to have pepper and plenty of moxie. Now look, you haven't got a bucket of paint with you on third base, you know. You've got to get the paintbrush out of your hand. 
DeRocher was a member of the 1928 world champion New York Yankees with Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. He was also friends with many celebrities from Hollywood who would hang around with him and the team. One of them was Frank Sinatra. Can you tell me about the time where Frank Sinatra managed one of your spring training games? (laughs) (laughs) That was a funny thing. We were playing in Palm Springs, and of course, I guess he knew him from New York. And uh, Leo was telling us Frank always wanted management, so I'm going to let him manage today. And uh, we playing a game in Palm Spring, and, and Frank managed in the club. And Leo was in the clubhouse. He went in the clubhouse and let, let Frank manage the club. And I think the game got kind of tight in about the seventh inning or something like that. <laughs> and you could hear Frank screaming, Hey, Leo, what the hell I do now? <laughs> but he got a chance to manage, sit on the bench. I wish I... You know, I wish I had had the phone that they have now. You could take instant pictures and stuff. Right. You know, for all those things that happened in the past years. But it was exciting sitting on the bench with one of the greatest singers of all time, Frank Sinatra. It was a great thing to uh, sit down and talk to him. Did he wear the? Uh, did he wear a uniform or was he in dress clothes? No, 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 no. Frank didn't put on the uniform. He was in his street clothes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, listen, Billy, I'll get you out of here on this. On June 29, 1969, at Wrigley, you broke Stan Musial's streak for consecutive games played by a National Leaguer. You ended up playing in 1,117 consecutive games. It was a doubleheader that day, and there was a ceremony in between games to honor you. The Cubs ended up giving you several gifts, including, I think, a boat and a Chrysler Imperial with a, a brown Chrysler Imperial. That didn't start. That didn't start. What? Had to push it off the field, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a new car. Yeah, but I think the battery had died. Oh, my gosh. It was sitting. They got it, a, I guess, about a week or two before they bought it on the field and the, and the thing had died, you know. How long did but you keep uh, that car? They, they did shower me with gifts. I had the, the boat and, of course, the, uh, the car which was traded after three or four days. I traded for my Buick. But I think that one of the most important thing about that day, I didn't think we were going to play because it was uh, it was really, it looked like it was going to rain all day. And we get to the ballpark and, you know, I look up and the sun come out and we playing the game of baseball. We playing the Cardinals. And, of course, uh, Stan Musial was in town. The first game, I got the base hit. Uh, Gibson pitched the first game, I think, base hit and scored the winning run the first game. The second game, you know, after about 20 minutes, we come out and start the second game. And in that game, I got the single, double, the triple. I wanted the home run. And the fans knew what I was trying to do. 40,000 fans was in the stand, knew what I was trying to do. So I wind up striking out. And I guess this is the first time in the history of baseball, uh, 40,000 fans give you a standing ovation for striking out. You went four for five in that second game with a double mm-hmm. and two triples. And, I, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about putting an exclamation point on an already memorable day. Yeah, it really was. It really was. It was a really memorable day. And most of all, that day, you know, after I got home, I tell you, I drank a bottle of wine, some wine, and... Uh, made me relax and I I think I slept after that game for about two or three hours you know but the most important thing one of the most important things we beat the Cardinals a doubleheader and we moved in the first place a team we had to beat and we moved in the first place and it was it was so exciting and a lot of people come up to me and you know like (laughs) like a hundred thousand people say they was at that game yeah 
Chicago. But a lot of people remember that game, uh, you know, because it was so exciting to me. It was exciting to the Chicago fans here in Chicago. Out of all the years of your career, Billy, is there one piece of memorabilia or uh, like a uniform or a glove that you've kept that means more to you than anything else? I have a few things here. I have the silver bat when I won the uh, the baton pile was given to me by the league. But one of the things that I treasure is uh, when I first came to the big league, I, I was fortunate enough to win the rookie of the year. And the rookie of the year, they gave you a bowl, a, a silver bowl. And I have that bowl, and I look at it all the time, and I said, this what started it right here. Along with that, and, uh, I treasure that along with the other stuff I have here. What a privilege to be able to talk to you. Six-time All-Star, 1961 Rookie of the Year, NL batting champion, finishing your career with 2,711 hits, 426 home runs, a lifetime 290 batting average, and an inductee into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1987. And just honestly, one of the nicest guys in baseball, and just a, a privilege and an honor for me to be able to spend this part of the afternoon with you today. Thank you, Mike. Enjoy the weather out in San Diego. Sit a little bit here. <laughs> I will do it. Billy, all, okay, take care, guy. all the best to you and your family. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Take care. You know, I look back at those Chicago Cubs teams from the 1960s, and yes, it's true, they had some of baseball's all-time great players. Ernie Banks, Ron Santo, Fergie Jenkins, Billy Williams. But in addition to being Hall of Fame talent, they were all really good guys. And for folks who grew up in and around Chicago and rooted for the Cubs and still root for the Cubs, uh, I know they can attest to that fact. By the way, there's a link in the podcast notes to a documentary that I discovered called King of the Hill. It does a great job of chronicling the 1972-1973 Chicago Cubs, Fergie Jenkins and Billy Williams, their um, their relationship. They, of course, were teammates, but they were also best friends. So uh, I encourage you to check that out. It's definitely worth watching. I want to take a second and thank our producers, Briggs Buckingham, Xavier Guerra, Michael Ortman, Maddie Zavlakis, and Mike Dunn. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week and tune in next Wednesday for another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.